0: All right, welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host Elias Ayala, and today I am super excited to have a guest with us, um, Dr. Scott Oliphant of Westminster Theological Seminary, to discuss um, what is popularly known as presuppositional uh, apologetics. But of course, uh, anyone familiar with Dr. Oliphant's work, uh, they uh, will understand that uh, he's not a big fan of the terminology, and I agree with him. Uh, The term does have some uh, ambiguity in it, and so. Um, he has kind of worked towards uh, changing uh, kind of the nomenclature there into uh, covenantal apologetics, which I think grounds the uh, methodology in Scripture, and so um, I very much resonate with that. And so we're going to uh, just w- welcome Dr. Scott Oliphant in just a few moments. If you're wondering, you're seeing my my face on the camera there, and. and Dr. Oliphant has had a makeover. He Now he just looks like a gray circle. <laughs> there, um, uh, He will not be appearing via video, but his audio will be there. And, and so I'm sure this video will still uh, prove uh, useful as well. Those of you who are also following the Revealed Apologetics podcast, I will be taking this audio and putting it up on the, on the podcast as well so that anyone who's interested can avail themselves of this material. Um, Also, just before we formally introduce Dr. Oliphant, um, um, he will be taking live questions. So if you have any questions, you can put them on the comments and then we'll put them up on the screen. Uh, Just as a a heads up, uh, we are taking questions that are pertaining to apologetic methodology, not some idiosyncratic view that you know uh, Dr. Oliphant may or may not hold and get into some of these other side issues. So I want to try and keep the questions uh, specifically to our topic at hand. I greatly appreciate that. And of course, keep your questions succinct and and short uh, and to the point. Uh, Without further ado, then, I'd like to welcome Dr. Scott Oliphant. Why don't you say hi to the audience there and tell folks a little bit about yourself if maybe they don't know who you are?
1: Right. Thank you. Yeah, I'm um, currently at Westminster Theological Seminary, uh, professor of apologetics and systematic theology. I've been uh, here (laughs) here since 1991, Uh, originally born and raised in Texas, and we moved here in 91, have three children and, um, 11 grandchildren. So whew, that's the story. Okay. Living
0: the life, man. Yeah. All right. And, uh, and you are, um, uh, a proponent of, of what some people would call Vantillian apologetics. Why don't you, um, define for us, uh, your specific flavor of presuppositionalism and, um, and then we'll take it from there.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, um, I, I hope it's I hope it's not my flavor. What what I what I hope to do is um, is take Van Til's approach and uh, make it more accessible, uh, more explicitly theological, um, more understandable. And so, I, one of the things that I <clears throat> um, recognized early on when I was thinking about apologetics, this was before I even came to Westminster so it was over 30 years ago but I was speaking to um a well-known apologist um name's not important but he was not um happy with Van Til's approach and okay. and uh, so we were speaking together and he said so are you a presuppositionalist and I said yes and he said so are you Shaferian or Carnelian or Clarkian um or been telling, you know, so off he went and listing these things. And that's the first time I'd heard that. I'd read Schaefer, but I just hadn't uh, organized things in that particular way. And it it bothered me a little bit because um, I knew enough about Clark and Cornell. um, And as I said, I'd read Schaefer to know that there were significant differences, Um, whatever the overlap between those men, there were significant differences. Um, So uh, I think, what the word presuppositionalism does is it provides a kind of overarching category for just about anybody who thinks presuppositions are important. And that's Mm -hmm. not really what Van Til was after. So the term itself was one that was actually um, given to him uh, in the late 40s. You you may know in in a, um, in an article that was printed, it was, it was uh, said orally before that, but it was printed first in the late 40s. He was called a presuppositionalist and it stuck and Van Til didn't mind. So he just let it stick. But it wasn't a term that he himself uh, gave to his approach. Sure. Um, and, and I think one of the um, one of the problems with it. Well, let me let me just say, first of all, of course, the label is going to stay. It's been there. It's sort of written in our in our history and in, in history of apologetics. So it's, it's going to stick around. Um, I think that's an unfortunate fact. Um, it's going to stay, but it's, it's, um, it's so ambiguous. Number one, um, it, it includes, uh, I think, um, a kind of breadth that doesn't help in specifying what it is. I'm not against breadth. I'm just saying the label itself is too broad to really specify what Van Til was up to. And I think the third thing Uh, almost as important is that it gives the impression that apologetics is primarily, if not exclusively philosophical. Mm. And it's just not, I mean, apologetics has had to deal with philosophy through the years and centuries because philosophy has been known to attack Christian belief. And and if you're going to attack Christian belief philosophically, it's it's a good idea to answer it philosophically if you're able Mm. to do that. But, but apologetics isn't, isn't, um, Fundamentally philosophical, it's fundamentally Christian and biblical. And I think the word presuppositionalism is just a long philosophical, abstract, ambiguous term that is of virtually no help in our day and time. I mean, I, I hear people say this still. They say, you know, I, I have presuppositions, so I'm a presuppositionist. That's not what it means. Or, you know, back in the heyday of postmodernism, people would say, well, Van Til was the first postmodern because he recognized that everybody has their own interpretation of the world. That's not what he's saying. That's not it either. So, um, Van Til's gotten a lot of bad press, um, a lot of misunderstandings out there that remain. Uh, there's a cultural narrative that's taken hold that just perpetuates itself about all the problems with Van Til's view. And I think most of those, I'm not trying to be naive here because I know there'll always be detractors, but I think most of those could be cleared up if the discussion revolved around theological and biblical concerns in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then if we want to move to philosophical things, we, we can do that or others can do that if they want to. No. But but the primary uh, the primary impetus behind everything Van Til did was who God is and the authority of his word. And, and those are the two foundational presuppositions of everything that happens and everything that is in the world. And without those, there is nothing. So so all he was trying to say to us is. Those have to be our presuppositions, our foundations, not only when we're living in this world that God has made under God's authority, but also when we're speaking to others who, who don't want to um, uh, abide by that authority or don't, mm. who don't believe in God or who aren't sure whether there's a good. In any case, the fact of the matter is still that God made the world. He is who he is, and he has said what he says and what he says is the truth uh, from Genesis to Revelation and what he says in creation is the truth. So those are all theological points, biblical points that need to be stressed.
0: Right. And I think the biblical aspect is very important. This is one of the reasons um, I have to be careful not to say presuppositionalism. I, I, I do fun. I do agree with uh, your, your uh, way of phrasing it. So what drew me closer to covenantal apologetics is it's very biblical nature, but I think a lot of um, people's access point to presuppositionalism is often through that philosophical um, route. Mm-hmm. And of course, Van Til's language is just uh, uh, covered with idealistic philo- philosophical vocabulary of which he didn't hold to those idealistic philosophical systems and, and points, but he filled it with Christian meaning because as you know, he was very much um, bathed in scripture from his youth, and these were the categories that he thought. Um, but I think it's very important that we get back to those those scriptural um, those scriptural issues. And just another point too, I think, um, and I agree with you here that the term presuppositionalism is very ambiguous. I've heard people equate uh, presuppositional methodology as fideism because they de- they define presupposition uh, as an assumption that is taken on its own authority, and you cannot validate it externally and so they'll say you just it's kind of like an they'll equate it with like an axiom which is by definition unprovable and so um is that something you see people make mistakes at the scholarly level as they critique it or is this just more at uh, the popular range
1: yeah i think you're right i think it's at, at all kinds of levels um once you tell somebody that that my responsibility is to presuppose the truth and and in speaking to people who don't believe in god or who don't believe his word that we're presupposing those things they're automatic reaction is, well, then, you know, you've got nothing to say to somebody who doesn't believe it. Well, you've got a world of things to say to somebody, literally a world of things to say to somebody who doesn't believe it, uh, because even in their unbelief, they are still having to presuppose the existence of God and what he has said. Now, they don't believe that, but the presupposition at that point is more dealing with the state of affairs than it is their own belief system. And I think that's a legitimate way to talk about presuppositions. Man, Till does it that way. So, so there's, no, there's no leaning toward uh, fideism here. It's just, to me, it's another one of those narratives um, that's out there that, that people want to use just to try to sort of throw an ad hominem out and dismiss it because who, who would believe in fideism? You know, it's that sort of um, boogeyman that they put out there. Uh, faith is important. Christian faith is, is uh, necessary to us. Um, but to say that uh, presupposition is fideistic is really to take it out of the Christian context altogether.
0: That's right. Okay, just a real quick shout out. Uh, just going to give uh, uh, two books here for people who are interested. Uh, this comes highly recommended by Dr. Oliphant. It might be his favorite apologetics book, Christian Apologetics by Norman Geisler. I'm just kidding. Uh, if you guys are interested in, in Dr. Oliphant's work, you can definitely check out his book Covenant uh, Covenantal Apologetics. Uh, Principles and practice in defense of our faith. One of my favorite definitions of apologetics is I heard it from you first, Dr. Oliphant. Um, And again, it just gets back to this issue of the biblical nature of uh, the presuppositional method. Is that in one context, and you can maybe expand on this, you defined apologetics as the application of biblical theology to unbelief. And I really like that. Why don't you expand on why you phrase it that way? Or maybe I'm misquoting you and you want to (laughs) clarify. No, thank you. Yeah, and and again, what I'm
1: trying to do is, um, I, I think Van Til would say amen and amen to that. What what I'm trying to do is is try to help people understand um, that if all of us as Christians uh, are um, required by Scripture to do apologetics, First Peter three fifteen, then God has given us what we need to do it, and what we need is the truth of His Word. Of course, we need the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, and when you have those things then you're you're capable and then then what do you do you bring in the other things that you know maybe you're an, an expert in computer science so you're able to talk to somebody in that field maybe you are an expert in philosophy so you can deal with these things philosophically sure. but whatever else you bring in those are sort of addenda to the foundation which is is biblical truth so what we're doing in apologetics because it's christian apologetics is we're we're trying to help people understand why we believe what we do and if we don't believe what we do, we really have nothing rational or cogent that we can believe. That's a kind of impossibility the contrary. That's, that's what Vantel like to call it, sort of transcendental. And, and that's a nice way to think about it. If we really believe that Christianity is true, and we do, we don't believe Christianity is true because we believe it. It was true whether we believe it or not, that's right. but we, we believe it's true because it's the only position that's cogent and rational according to what God himself has said. Mm -hmm. So we can't just measure rationality as some sort of neutral thing because we've seen in the history of thought where that's gone, that always devolves into an utter subjectivism and nobody can live with an utter subjectivism. Uh, so we understand that what is rational is what God has said. And, and if we don't understand God in that particular way, then we really have nothing but our own subjective belief. And and people recognize intuitively because they're made in the image of God and know God, they recognize they can't live with an utter subjectivity. No mm. one operates that way in the world, no matter what they want to argue.
0: Mm. Now, when, when people um, come into contact with presuppositional methodology, there is often uh, a... a a blurring of the lines between presuppositionalism as a methodology and the transcendental argument as a specific argument. Uh, why don't you explain for us, uh, is the transcendental argument equivalent to presuppositionalism or is it an application of presuppositionalism in a particular instance? So are you familiar with the conflation of those two concepts? Why don't you, um, kind of iron that out for us?
1: Yeah, I am. And you know, I'm, uh, I guess true confessions here. I'm not terribly interested in the transcendental argument side of, of folks, not nothing against those. I mean, people can, can make those applications and that, that could be, uh, come, on, I love,
0: I love the <laughs> come on, man. Yeah,
1: no, but okay. So what, having, having spoken of it in that way, let me, let me tell you what I think Van Till was trying to do uh, was something different than what these folks are trying to do. And again, I want to say if you can do it, do it and and more power to you. It's just not my particular interest, but what Van Til was up to, and again, this is because you, you alluded to this earlier. This is because of his training, his, his training, you know, he moved from, from, from Calvin uh, college reading Bob Inc and Kuiper to Princeton seminary. And at Princeton seminary, he became a little uneasy because um, especially in his apologetics course with uh, William Britton Green Jr., uh, he was getting common sense realism. And um, and that can be proven. That's not debatable because um, at least in our library here at Westminster, we have the syllabus from William Britton Green's right. um, um, apologetics course. He's he's getting common sense realism and that disturbs him because he says, wait a minute, I would, the reform stuff I was reading at Calvin doesn't comport with this apologetic methodology. Now, if you read Van Til's works, he praises uh, his apologetics professor. So There's nothing personal here, but he recognized some inconsistency. So he leaves Princeton Seminary and goes to Princeton University and writes his dissertation on um, idealism, um, God the absolute. So it's, it's Christianity and idealism. In other words, idealism is not Christian. And there were some during Van Til's time who were saying because idealism touts an absolute, it really is Christian because we believe God is an absolute. And Ventil is saying, no, 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 that's an absolute that requires a relative. God doesn't require a relative. God is absolutely absolute, requiring nothing else. He's in need of nothing at all. He is, I say, uh, is and always has been. So so when Ventil's reading all of these um, uh, authors of idealism, one of the things that he becomes very astute in is um, uh, Kantian idealism. Now, now, Kant's um, philosophy is very uh, technical and and um, right. difficult for anybody to understand. But one of the things that Kant was trying to do in the wake of David Hume's empiricism, which had led people, even during Hume's time, led people into utter skepticism. So just just for your listeners, in, in Western history, and again, this is a gross generalization, but I think it has some truth to it. The rationalists tried to show that, that everything could be understood strictly by way of the rational axioms or by way of the intellect. Begins with Descartes, um, I think, therefore I am. Sure. That proved to be a failure. So along come the empiricists, and it was sort of gradual from Locke uh, to Barclay to Hume. And by the time Hume comes along to try to be a consistent empiricist, what, what he finds out, Hume himself recognizes this. He says, I go out of my study and play backgammon. And then I come back in my study and, and you know none of my philosophy makes any sense because he was arguing for um, the non-reality of cause and effect and things like that because they can't be proven empirically. Well, that leads you to skepticism. So Immanuel Kant is studying away Interestingly, he's studying metaphysics, nature of ultimate reality, and he comes across um, Hume's writings. And what does he say? He says, Hume woke me up from my dogmatic slumber. So what did Hume do? He woke Kant up to the reality of the problems of metaphysics. And so Kant begins to develop in his critique of pure reason, uh, what he calls a transcendental approach. And, and And the reason I use the word approach is because it wasn't in Kant's day meant to be a strict formal logical method in the way that there were other formal logical methods available to people at that point in time but it was actually meant to be transcendental approach was meant to be an argument that showed how unless you presuppose whatever kant thought you presuppose unless you presuppose something let's say let's keep it general then you can't prove anything else mm-hmm. so that any proof has itself a foundation and a presupposition on which it rests. Now, for Kant, that was a, a convoluted series of um, sure. of uh, qualities and, and conceptual ideas. And that. So Van Til takes that. It's a long answer to your question, but Van sure. Til takes that idea of transcendental, and he says, wait a minute. That's really what we're saying in Christianity, that unless you presuppose the reality of who God is on the basis of what God says in his inerrant word, unless you presuppose those things, then things like logic and the empirical, the rational, these things sort of float in the air and have no real foundation. So uh, again, I want to say, you know, people that are are wanting to try to formalize transcendental argumentation, that's great. I'm just saying, that's not my interest. What Van, what Van Til was up to was you have to have those. This is a, This is a necessity of of the created order. You have Mm -hmm. to have those things. Who God is and what he has said, and those things have to be laid out side by side because you can't have one without the other. Who God is and what he said. Given that then, we can properly understand logic and the empirical, the rational. Without those things, it's impossible. For those so, things properly to be understood.
0: So, so, so the transcendental argument can be formulated as a specific argument. But you would say that what Van Til was thinking was, pre, he he was trying to present to us a biblical way of the way we must think that we find ourselves in this context in which these things must be true in order for anything else to be true. So, in once in one sense. Generally speaking, in conversation, we present the Christian way of thinking and outlook, and why it's a necessary foundation. But perhaps some people have tried to formalize that within a different context, maybe in a debate or trying to make a point to an unbeliever.
1: Yeah, good way to put it. Exactly right. So again, the latter, the one you mentioned—that nothing wrong with that. But what I'm saying is, Ben Till didn't have interest in that. I don't have particular interest in that what Van Til was trying to say is, you know, you could put, you could put it this way. Um, this gives some objectivity to it. Van Til would say, look at, look at the history of philosophy. All right. They've had 4,000 years, uh, at least, um, mm-hmm. in the West to work, to work on, to work on three basic questions, the nature of ultimate reality, the nature of knowledge, and the nature of ethics, right and wrong. They've got those, those three categories. Where are they 4,000 years later? They're still wondering about the nature of reality, the nature of knowledge, and the nature of right and wrong. Now, what's the problem? The problem is that philosophy itself has failed to give an account of those things. And the reason for that, and I'm speaking generally here, of course, there, you know, you've got all these sorts of specifics um, underneath that that you can. Argue about. But the reason that there has been that failure, the reason that Descartes couldn't prove what he wanted to prove, the reason that Hume couldn't get to where he wanted to get to is because they were all trying to do this Mm -hmm. without recognizing that this is God's world. God has spoken. There's a connection between a human being and the world because God has created that connection covenantally at the beginning and maintains and sustains it all along. Unless you have those things that sort of transcend the subject and the object there's no way to bring the subject and the object together so that's why van til called it the impossibility of the contrary any position contrary to the christian position is impossible consistently to believe and to live that that yeah. was the that was the point he was trying to make so that's the impossibility yeah. of the contrary
0: all right. So, so let's, let's jump into this now. So, cause the, primarily this, this show is, is apologetic in nature. Um, so if someone asks you uh, from a presuppositional perspective, how do you know Christianity is true? I'm an atheist. You know, I don't believe all this, you know, you guys give cosmological arguments, this, that, the other the other thing. I don't see how you Christians can demonstrate that your perspective is true. I know you guys believe it. I know you guys are very passionate about it, but I have yet to see an argument that can demonstrate conclusively that Christianity is true. What say you, Dr. Oliphant?
1: Yeah, well, as you know, there are about um, 100 to 200 ways to uh, to begin to address that. One of the things I, I uh, try to impress on people, I'm not uh, an expert in this by any Sure. Uh, Stretching the imagination, but one of the things I try to impress on people is one of the first things you ought to do is is ask questions uh, to okay. the questioner. So, so I would say something uh, like this: Could it could it be possible that the reason you don't see it lies in yourself and not in the arguments themselves? Is it possible that there's something wrong with you, and that's why you don't see it, or is it just strictly that there's so much wrong with everything objective you you've looked at? that uh, there's no possibility for you to see it. And he, he would say, probably, oh, some, it's all the objective. and then, And then the next question would be, so what will it take in your mind for you to believe this to be true? What exactly do you need in order for you to believe this to be so, true?
0: So let me respond with a popular answer that people who do apologetics on the internet would be very familiar with, okay? Thanks. I don't know what it would take to convince me of your God, but if your God exists, he should know. <laughs> That's a popular one. People <laughs> yeah. will say so so how, how would you respond to that? I would respond by
1: saying, well, again, I could ask some questions, but it's, I don't want to be too obnoxious here, but instead if when I got <laughs> when I got to the when I got to the indicatives, one of the things I would say is, guess what? Uh, God does know. Uh, he knows exactly and he's already told me. And by the way, um I can tell you what he said about that. Mm. So, uh, this is not that God is not the problem here. Um, It's not that God hasn't made himself known. It's not that you don't know who God is and yourself to be a creature of God. Um, It's that you have an innate capacity and desire uh, to to subdue and rebel against uh, what God himself has done. There's a way out of that. Um, But if you really want to be out of that, you've got to listen to what God has said about it, not reject it. Hmm.
0: Now, Now, if someone says, okay, I, I guess I kind of, I kind of see where you're trying to get with that, but, but what's your argument, man? Give me premises. I want to follow your logic. Cause I don't say, I mean, we can have this conversation back and forth. You could ask me questions that maybe I can't answer fine, but give me an argument that God exists. How would you do that from a presuppositional uh, perspective?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you could, you could do it a number of ways. So I'm, I'm talking to you, you know, a hypothetical person here. I don't know much about you, um, so maybe I could say, maybe I could talk to you a little bit about my own testimony. All right. So that's not illegitimate. That's an argument. Okay. Um, but if I didn't want to do the experiential, I could do the more objective and, and say something like I said to you, uh, earlier, I would say something like, tell, tell me what's happened in the history of philosophy while, while philosophers have been trying to wrestle with the nature of ultimate reality. What is their conclusion and what I would ask this person, what is their conclusion, and what conclusion do you find tenable, and why would you find it tenable? So I, I would want to put the, the burden back on them. Then they would say, No, no, I'm talking about you. What's your argument? And I would say, Here's here's my argument. My argument is this. The reason I'm asking you those questions is because it is not rational for me or anyone else to can in and of ourselves, by ourselves, rationally produce the conclusions necessary that would compel us to
0: believe in God. Can you, say, can you repeat that again? I'm sorry. I think that was important. Maybe. Um, it's It's not possible for you or for me to
1: assume that we can rationally produce in and of ourselves the conclusions necessary to produce rational belief in us.
0: That's not possible. So basically you're saying, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, it's impossible to produce an argument to get to that conclusion autonomously, in and of ourselves. Exactly. So you're pushing. Exactly. You're pushing the point that if we want to go that route, we need to already rely on the context of the reality of Christianity.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. And and I may say, I may say something like the reason you're having such a problem here is because in your attempt, whether it's you know sincere or not, in your attempt to say. I want a rational argument. Underneath that attempt, what you're saying is, and don't you dare tell me who God is and what he has said. And I'm saying to you, if you won't let me say that, then you have disallowed the possibility of belief in the first place.
0: Mm. Okay. In other words, give me an argument, but don't bring in this revelation stuff. And you're saying that unless you start with that revelation, You can't even make. You can't even reach any. Not just the argument to conclude that the Christian God exists without the Christian context. You couldn't rationally conclude anything,
1: because you lack
0: you lack that worldview context to ground the very things we're engaging in.
1: That's right. And and I would say you don't have the right in our discussion to tell me to disallow what I'm saying to you is the only possibility of rational belief. You don't have the right to do that. So if you don't want to talk to me except in your terms okay. then let's go have a cup of coffee and we'll have another discussion later when we can have a meeting of the minds.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. So, so that's good for uh, a an, an everyday sort of conversation. Like, Hey, listen, you know, we have that foundation. We ask these questions. What about within the context of an actual debate? How would we structure more formally uh, what you've just said? Is there a, a way you can lay out uh, because basically what you're giving is a kind of transcendental argument and uh, right. couched in uh, you know conversational language. but if we were going to engage in a debate, maybe let's let's throw a bone to some of our internet apologists who engage in these things in this context. How might they construct a, a logically structured argument transcendentally? Is it possible to formulate um, a transcendental argument deductively in which you lay out a deductive argument and defend one of the premises transcendentally? What are different ways and different routes that that some apologists can can use in that regard?
1: Yeah, I think uh, I think your your latter question. Yeah, it's possible. Again, I'm not uh, I'm not as interested in that. It's possible to, to lay some of those out. Um, I think, you know, the quintessential example that probably most of your listeners uh, know about is, is Greg Bonson's debate with uh, with Gordon Stein. Mm-hmm. I think one of the reasons that that um, that that turned out so well is not only that Greg was such a good debater and a capable. Apologist, but it was also that that Stein had no idea what was what was coming at him, so he sort of assumed he had a he had a standard uh, Thomist um, on stage with him, and it and it just so happened um, Bonson agreed with him that those proofs aren't. Are useful and off he goes. But that you know, when you when you listen to 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 Greg in that debate, I mean, he has got it exactly right. Um, you know, at one point, maybe it's not in that debate, but at one point when he's debating, he says, "I want to thank so and so for for being here. You've just proven the existence of God." Right. Well, what, what's he doing there? What he's doing is is trying to to help people recognize that you know, if, if you're an atheist and you come to a debate, you're already presupposing that there's. There's meaning in what you and I are saying that, that when the words leave my mouth and reach your ears, that they're the same same word and that you can you can understand that and communicate back. None of that makes sense on an atheist worldview. Mm-hmm. So I think p- part of what you would want to do that Greg was so good at was try to show people how their worldview is in reality. Number one, meaningless and number two, meaningless, because it's based on their own presuppositions, mm-hmm. which are which are nothing more than uh, subjective decisions and biases that they've chosen. So, you know, Van Til would say, um, you know, I've got, I I have uh, presuppositions that are necessary in order for me to speak, in order for me to know, in order for me to live, in order for me to recognize anything. Uh, Tell me about your presuppositions. What are those? And Van Til would say, let me get on your ground. Let me get on the unbelievers ground and let's work with this a little bit and, and see how this goes. And and you know you you really don't don't have to get that complicated when when you get to the end end of it because as Schaefer like to say over and over again um, your your basic option is uh, time plus chance plus matter and right. there's not much else available to you at that point and if that's all you've got um, you know you've you've got uh, a lot of chemicals sort of mixed up in a bottle mm-hmm. and that's who we are now of course uh, agnostics and atheists are going to reject that but Sure. You want to try to find out why and how they they reject that, and that um, and that's right. where
0: the, that's where the question asking questions comes in. Yeah. And this is this is an important point too. And I just want to speak a little bit to people listening is that um, you don't successfully demonstrate the truth of your position merely by asking questions. Uh, this is one of the things that accusations that are made towards many presuppositionalists online, that we just are following this script to trip up the unbeliever. Uh, questions are are asked for a purpose. They're not, they're not just for setting up a trap or, or avoiding having to kind of put forth your own positive case. I think... Asking questions is vitally important in clarifying. And even using that kind of Socratic method of, of asking questions so as to allow the person who you're engaging with to understand, oh, wow, that, that is problematic within my view. You know, Ask them the question, right. and the manner in which they answer it actually is its own uh, refutation. I think that's very, very important. Okay, I'm just gonna stop. Just, real- yeah, go ahead. Did you wanna follow I up just, on that?
1: Just Yeah, I just wanna say one thing. You're exactly right. So one, one thing you might wanna do is say, um, let, let's say in the, to the person you're talking to, let's do it this way. Uh, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. And I'll be very sure. Then when I'm through, please either use those same questions or ask me your questions. And then we'll have some substance of debate in order mm-hmm. to go back and forth. So mm-hmm. the questions I'm asking you, please feel free to ask me because I'd like to give you answers to those as well. That's another way to think about that. And right. then you're into a real debate and a real argument about assumptions and ideas and presuppositions,
0: all sorts of things. Right. And that's not because you're on you want to avoid giving an argument. I think you're trying to get to the foundation that why go through an argument that will not address the issues because you have not first addressed the foundations that affect how we're going to even interpret those arguments and engage in the premises.
1: Right. And as I was saying to you earlier, unless you lay the ground rules for that, you're not going to be able to get into discussion in the first place because what typically what the other person is doing is going to disallow you right. to presuppose what you know you have to presuppose in order to have a discussion in
0: the first place. All right, excellent. Let's take a few moments to take some questions, if that's okay. We're going to put it up on the screen there, and um, you know, I, I would imagine you're not going to say pass, but if there's a question, you'll be like, I don't know. I, we don't know everything, but you're a pretty sharp no. guy. So I hear.
1: <laughs> you no, don't know
0: everything, that's for sure. That's right. That's right. Okay, so here's a question. Uh, Daniel asks, uh, "What is the role of arguments outside of the transcendental for believers uh, and atheists?" So basically, uh, if we're going to, as presuppositionalists, are we? only relegated to using different forms of transcendental arguments, or are, is there a place uh, for other sorts of arguments outside of that?
1: Yeah, I, again, I think um, it's, a really, it's a really good question because, um, you know, I, I want to say this in the proper way. I don't want to sound negative here, but we don't need to make too much of the transcendental. The transcendental is very important, I think, if, for those who understand it properly as the impossibility of the contrary, because it recognizes Christianity is true and nothing else is that's an important point to make. And that's an objective point. That's true whether we believe it or not. Um, but, um, you know, I, I would say again, I'm trying to um, make things here as accessible as possible. Look at the way Jesus argues. And, and, he, and he, um, he has different ways of arguing with different people. Um, but, you know, when he's, when he's arguing with um, the Sadducees about, um, you know, who's, who's this uh, woman gonna be married to, um, what does he do? He goes right to the Pentateuch, which is what the Sadducees uh, believed in. They didn't believe in the rest. And he talks about why their uh, belief in no resurrection, and he basically concludes how their belief in the resurrection, no, in no resurrection is absurd based on their own Pentateuch. That is based on what they claim to believe. So mm-hmm. what's he doing there? He's, he's persuasively turning their own views against them in order to apply pressure to not believe those views anymore, and he's doing it with what they themselves claim. So I would say one of the one of the best arguments that we see in Scripture over and over again is um, those who use what the others believe in order to show the reality and truth of what we believe. That's a kind of persuasive subversion that I think can be used very well in, in apologetic discussion. And you don't even have to talk about transcendental if, if you don't want to. Um, I think that's a nice way to begin to think about uh, argumentation. I'm, I'm working right now on a little book um, on apologetics and persuasion. I hope it'll be a little clearer to me and everyone else by the time I'm finished with that. But I think it's sometimes a, 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 a missing link in, in our apologetic discussions.
0: Mm. Uh, very good. Uh, again, there's another question by uh, Daniel. He, I, I, he's a nice guy. He has really good questions. And, and I like to uh, promote his questions because he's, he's asking basically what a lot of people ask. So I hope it, you don't mind seeing the same guy pop no, up multiple times, but <laughs> okay. As as he uh, doesn't
1: mind seeing me at all.
0: That's right. That's right. Um, Real quick, I just want to give a shout out to another uh, book that you contributed to. And I just finished reading your section, which I thought was uh, superb. Um, Again, I don't want to make your head too big, but I greatly appreciated it. In the book, Debating Christian Religious Epistemology, Debating Christian Religious Epistemology, Dr. Oliphant has a uh, a chapter there where he um, uh, defends, let me find the name of the chapter here a covenantal, covenantal epistem. That's right. And I just got finished reading it and it is a superb article or a section in the book and definitely will answer a lot of these other questions that we might not have addressed yet, but uh, are definitely prevalent in these discussions. So definitely check that out. Okay. Thanks. I just,
1: just wanted to say, um, it might be of interest that um, that was the um, title given to me by the editors when they asked me to do it. They said, would you Um, write a chapter and defend a covenantal epistemology. So I was happy they did that because that's what I would have wanted to call it. And um, so it was uh, it it was really fun to interact with those guys, differing views on Right, on Christian
0: religion. Now, now, i haven't I haven't read your interactions yet, so I'm going to make sure I, I avail myself of that um because I thought your chapter was was excellent here. now here's Thank a here's you. a here's a doozy. Uh, again, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with popular discussions on presuppositionalism, but these are the sorts of questions that a lot of people are asking, believe it or not, this issue of the one and the many. Um, so uh here's the question Should Christians present things such as the one and the many problem in Islamic debate or not? To what extent should these philosophical things be brought up? Now, before you answer the question, I do understand that there are different routes you can take. You can say, Well, we shouldn't bring those issues up because it kind of sidetracks from some from some other issues, but why don't you address the usefulness of the issue of how Christian the Christian worldview can ground this one and the many issue, whereas this might be problematic and perhaps useful to bring up in certain contexts. Uh, why don't you address that issue?
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, I think Van Til um, actually struck on some genius here when he began to think about these things, um, because again, he's uh, he's a he's a fully uh, reformed Christian man. He understands um, that the doctrine of God is not an abstraction. Uh, he doesn't. He's not interested in dealing with a kind of natural theology proper that has just philosophical moorings and and really can't get to the trinity um, mm-hmm. and that's the way that's the methodology that was used in some of the medievals and and even if even if they didn't mean to do it what they what what began to happen is that there was too much of a distinction sometimes even a methodological separation between god as one and God as three persons. Um, So what Van Til does is he starts then, you know, he says over and over again um, that we are meant to presuppose the triune God of scripture. And his starting point um, is not with one, but his starting point is with one in three. And as he begins to think about that, that God is one in essence, three in persons, um, it also strikes him that um, that reality uh, has the same kind of structure to it. It's analogous. It's analogous. It's not in any way identical. Um, but if we reckon and understand that the Trinity is, like God, incomprehensible to us, we, we don't know how it can be that the Father can be fully God, the Son fully God, the Holy Spirit fully God, and, and not three gods. We articulate that by way of uh, essence and persons or or, uh, Usea and subsistence. We have all kinds of ways, uh, hypostases, all kinds of ways of articulating that as we need to do. Um, but, um, we even when we say that, we still don't know, um, at bottom what we're talking about. We know, we know who we're talking about, but we can't get to the bottom of that. So it's mysterious. So, Ventil looks at the way philosophy has worked historically. In trying to deal with this problem, and his, you know, his, his famous foils are Parmenides and Heraclitus. Parmenides was the person who wanted to emphasize one and only one, and being is, and anything that is not being by definition is not, and therefore is nothing. Uh, so there is that which is, and and then nothing else, and that just summarizes everything into one abstract blob of oneness. And you know, Parmenides recognized that uh, the empirical would would show you something different. And he says, well, that's, you know, Parmenides, that's the common way. In other words, yeah, for for idiots like you and me, we have to go with the way the world is. We just we just have to navigate it that way. But for the philosopher kings, uh, the way we understand these things is, is by our intellect. And we know that being is and, and, and nothing else could be, that one of those kinds of. So Heraclitus, um, the opposite direction, um, Panta Ray, everything flows, everything is in flux. So it's not that there is one, but there's many, you, you can't, you know, the illustration, you can't step into the same river twice. You put your foot in, you pull it out, you put it in a, a nanosecond later, it's a different river. Mm. How do you bring these two together? That's what philosophy has been attempting to do with with mainly with prejudice to the one, but you know, in our contemporary era, a lot of, lot of prejudice to the many. Um, how, how do you bring these two things together, the, the, the universal and the particular? Um, you have a, a tree outside your window and you say, there's that tree. But but in order to identify that tree, you have to know something about tree nests and you have to know something specific about that particular tree. So not only does it participate in tree nests, but it participates in elm nests or something like that. Uh, how do you bring these two together? Van Til's point was you like analogous to, okay, just analogous to God as one in three. Um, it's not humanly possible to reduce one to the other, nor does God want us to do that, to reduce the tree just to itself without any tree-ness or to think of tree-ness as the real tree like Plato would do uh, without reference to the specific thing. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of the one of the many, you know, in, in sort of uh, general overview. Um, how how important is it uh in in uh, in islam i think i think it just depends um i think um i have a chapter in covenantal apologetics seventh chapter where i do a hypothetical dialogue with a muslim and that issue doesn't really come up in that dialogue it could have you it's hypothetical so a a, a hundred other things could have happened but um What I try to do in that dialogue is show from quotations from an actual Muslim scholar show that um, the problem with um, Islam is it's um, inconsistent. And I I would say uh, it's irrational rationality. That is, it tries to be overly rational, which is why it's going to reject the Trinity. And in trying to be overly rational, it really can't even make sense of the, um, Quran. I mean, it's it's not even able to help us recognize what the Quran is, much less what it says. So mm. I think the one and the many again is a is a sort of a genius of Van Til. Uh, I think it can be used uh, in apologetic discussions, but I think one of the things we don't want to do in our apologetic discussions is force uh, the the issue when when it's not really what people are. are, are dealing with personally, you know, how, how stressing is it? How much sleep do I lose over the one in many problem? Um, not very much really.
0: (laughs) Okay. I'm going to take two more questions for now. There's a lot of questions coming in. Uh, these two questions are, are taken from Pine Creek. He is a skeptic. I believe he's an atheist agnostic. Um, And he's got uh, somewhat of a a, a YouTube presence and he's asking a question. I think it's a good question um, and would be a good opportunity for you to clarify. And so he asked the question regarding circularity. If you need God, let me put this up here. If you need God to justify logic, then you can't use logic to justify God without being circular. Does Scott agree? Perhaps you can say if you agree or not and then kind of qualify that if you understand what he's asking
1: yeah i mean part- part of the a good question I think part of the issue here has to do with our terms um so let's not talk so much about need, but let's say as I believe that God is the one who creates everything that that is and including our way of thinking and and one of the ways that he has embedded our thinking is logically that is we are made to make distinctions. And when when God made Adam and Eve, he made a distinction between Adam and Eve, and he made a distinction between Adam and Eve and creation and the different uh, species that he created. All of that is God helping us um, understand that our thinking is analogous to his own thinking. Uh, so I think it, without that, uh, again, as, uh, as Bonson, I think, helpfully showed in his debate with Gordon Stein, uh, without a foundation like that, then it's difficult uh, to um, uh, for someone to show how the abstractions of logic actually fit in the created world. I think Van Til's famous phrase was he called logic a turnpike in the sky. And uh, somebody asked him, you know, why do you use that illustration? Why is it a turnpike? Why is it in the sky? And he says, because you can't get on it. And, and what he meant by that is in his study of logic, and I think it's still uh, true, we're talking very generally here, but I think it's still true that logicians have a difficult time moving from the symbols uh, to reality.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: so, um, you know, what, what is taking place actually in the world when things are changing? I mean, Heraclitus was right on, uh, on one level. Uh, everything that we see around us is changing to some extent. And um, so so how do we think about those things? My, my, um, my eldest son is a, is a philosophy student, getting a PhD in philosophy. And one of the courses that he took a couple of years ago was a course called Vagueness. And I said, "What? It's an entire what course. Yeah, it's a whole course." <laughs> and I said, "What in the world is going on in Vegas?" And he said, "Well, you know, it's 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 um, the reality that we really aren't able all the time to think in a binary way. You know, a and not a. So at what point, this desk in front of me? Let's say I cut it in half, and now there's half a desk, but it's there's still a desk there that I can put things on it, and I just start slicing, slicing pieces of it." moving toward the edge. At what point does it cease to be a desk? Well, you know, it's kind of vague. Um, and, and, you know, there are a lot of answers to that. Maybe it's not a desk after you cut it in half. Maybe, maybe now you've got a half a desk. So you've got this kind of vagueness in reality. That's not quite as conducive to a is not non a as some people want to think. Now, having said that we're made to make distinctions like a is not non a so I'm not saying at all there's anything wrong with those. I'm saying those things have to be grounded. And if they're grounded in the character of God, then we recognize, again, there's something transcendental that that um, supersedes the subject and the object and helps us to recognize how properly to use logic. Right. Um, so,
0: so, so real quick, Dr. Elephant, why don't we simplify that then? So uh, if someone says, if you need God to justify logic, then you can't use logic to justify God without being circular. Is that true or false? If it's true, is that an issue? Is it an issue of being circular when it comes to our ultimate foundations? Is it fallaciously circular to be circular with regards to our ultimate foundations?
1: Well, it's um, you know, it's sort of like saying um, if if your your questioner um, used uh, air uh, to breathe in order to write his questions um, that. <laughs> He's, you know, he's being circular in justifying the reality of air for life. There are certain things, as many philosophers have have pointed out, whether you buy their arguments or not, there are certain things um, that are by nature circular because of the way God has created the world. Mm -hmm. And and yes, there's a fallacy of uh, reasoning in a circle when the circle is vicious, uh, but circularity in and of itself Um, is not logically fallacious.
0: Why don't you um, uh, uh, explain that for people? What's the difference between uh, what people say, virtuous circularity and vicious circularity? What's the difference there? And why is one fallacious and why is the other one not?
1: Yeah, well, I think the main reason is because in vicious circularity, um, you stop at a place where you've started. And in each of those, the stopping place and the starting place there's no foundation or ground available to you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, so again, the, the illustration of the dog chasing its tail. You know, why why would you why would you do that? That's kind of a viciously circular enterprise with no meaning. Because why you've got no context in which to make that meaningful. There's no foundation there uh, in order to understand that properly. Um, a virtu- a virtuous circle is weak. Uh, means that um, when you uh, when you presuppose, as we do, um, that God exists and that He has spoken in His Word, and then you don't even have to say that when you're in in the midst of an argument. But then you start to discuss things with people about maybe who God is or what logic is with your questioner there, um, and how to think about logic. And that person says to to me, uh, "Well, uh, see, so you're you're presupposing God in in uh, talking about logic, and so you're using." logic in order to talk about God and I would say yeah uh, because there's no other position available to us in the world that God has made and and you and you and I as God's creatures mm-hmm. uh, so in that sense we're we're not in the midst of a vicious circle but we're presupposing something and then given that presupposition we can talk about anything in the world but just because we're talking about those things or using those things uh, doesn't mean that um, the circularity nullifies the argument. Any way, shape, or form. Again, it's like um, you know, prove to me the the uh, the verifiability or the or the um, trustworthiness of the empirical. Prove that to me without using the empirical. Um, you just can't do it. Um, it's because we're we're made in a particular way. Um, God's put us here
0: in a particular way, and so there's nothing wrong with that. Um,
1: mm-hmm. That's the way God has made man and woman.
0: All right, great stuff. Um, and I hope that's answering uh, many of your questions. Again, we're not going to be able to get to everyone's questions, but I will every now and then uh, 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 scroll up and down to find something that I think would be useful uh, for people. Let's get back into our, our main discussion. Now, I want to talk a little bit about um, not so much presuppositionalism and kind of like explaining the ins of out ins and out of it. Since we you kind of did that, and there's obviously more that can be said uh, with regards to that. If people can avail themselves of the books that are out there and articles, um, let's talk a little bit about the comparison between the presuppositionalism Presuppositional method and the classical method, which is usually the uh, the other side of the coin for a, a lot of people. And I want you to be able to define as briefly as you can presuppositionalism, and it's okay if you if you rehash a little bit about what you've already mentioned, but very succinctly. And then classical apologetics. What are the key differences? And as a presuppositionalist, what concerns you about a classical approach? Um, and when I say concern, I don't mean we're painting you know our side versus their side from our perspective, what are some of the concerns from an apologetics and biblical context of using that methodology? And then we can kind of uh, dig into those in a little more detail.
1: Yeah. Okay. So um, when when I talk about um, Van Til's approach, um, again, I, I say that there are two, two primary things that we recognize. Uh, foundation that we stand on is um, who God is and what he has said. Without those two, we've got nothing to say. Without those two, we don't even exist. So mm. that that has to be basic. Now, when, when we say that, when I say that, that doesn't mean that's the first thing we say in a conversation. It just means when we're in our conversation, we can never leave that foundation really and truly. We can leave it, Van Til says, for argument's sake alone, get onto the foundation of somebody to whom we speak and mm. begin to talk about their assumptions and their ideas and their their views. Um, but in doing that, we're always uh, standing where we have to stand, which is um, God is who he has said he is and God has spoken. So so that's my view of a kind of covenantal approach. Those things are are necessary, important, um, without which we cannot be, uh, I think, um, covenantal apologists. Mm-hmm. Um, the classical approach, again, I, I I hate the word because it just depends on um, who you're you're referring to. Sure. It te- it tends to refer to a certain uh, view of Thomas Aquinas. Okay. Now it's it's a view of it's a view of Thomas that's that's out there among Thomas. Um, there are other views of Thomas um, that wouldn't be as uh, enamored with some of Thomas's five ways, or would want to see them uh, uh, differently. Um, but the way the way that I learned Thomas when I I took a course on on, on Aquinas at Villanova from a, from a Thomas, the very Uh, respected one and, and, a fascinating teacher. The way I learned Thomas is that, um, his, he taught me that, uh, Thomas's five ways, uh, were meant to move you to the existence of a God and, and the five ways would, would be, um, you know, first mover, that one's pretty much out because it's sort of, um, uh, antiquated, but you've got causality, contingency, um, the, the nature of being or the gradation of being and teleology design, um, those four, uh, the, I think one of the, the problems, um, with the classical approach, the, the way I try to put it in my, in my classroom is, um, if you're, uh, we have students from all kinds of theological backgrounds and, and um, you know, many, many countries at, at Westminster. So there's a, there's a variety in the, in the classroom. Uh, and so I, I tell students, um, if your basic approach to theology is more Arminian, uh, then you, you should not be a covenantal apologist. And then I say, but I'm going to try to make you one by the time we're, we're finished with class. But, <laughs> But if you're if you're if you're a theological um, leaning as Arminian, then then you probably ought to be classical. So that that kind of gets to to what I see as the uh, at least two of the main problems uh, in a in a more classical approach. If we think of it as generally Thomistic, um, the first one is um, I don't see anybody in the classical side of things uh, taking Romans one seriously. The fact that um, Paul is is clear uh, that all people know God. And it's not that all people have the potential of knowing God. This is not a, a capacity that might possibly be filled if we have the proper experience. That's um, some people's way of understanding what Paul's up to there. That's not what he says. As a matter of fact, he says we, we know God and it's that knowledge of God uh, for which we will be held accountable uh, on the day of judgment, so we we remain inexcusable. we're We're inexcusable because God's uh, revelation in and through creation gets through to us, whether we like it or not because it's God doing it, It gets through to us, and therefore we know him. now the the, the question would be, and and you know Calvin was brilliant on this, what what would that do uh, to our apologetic and our discussion with people? if we knew that the ones to whom we speak actually know God, but suppress that knowledge and unrighteousness. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't mean that we come right up to them and say, hey, you know, God, but you're suppressing it. That's not the point. But the point is, we know the ones to whom we speak know God, and that what they're giving us in their own philosophy, their own understanding of the world, their own unbelief, what they're giving us is actually a suppression of the truth and unrighteousness rather than, Mm -hmm. than the truth. So that's that you don't see that in classical apologetics. The second thing you don't see that I think is uh, just as important is you don't see a robust understanding of depravity in the classical apologetics. So what you tend to see in a classical approach is the view that our reasoning capacity is basically intact and able in and of itself to understand the world properly and to understand any arguments properly so that we really don't have to include God and who he is and what he said and what he's done in our argumentation, because our mind is perfectly capable in and of itself of coming mm-hmm. to the proper conclusions. So I think in the in the classical approach, those two things um, are sort of um, problematic.
0: With regards to that last thing you said, I, I do hear often uh, the accusation of presuppositionalists um, conflating um, Ontology and epistemology, and there are those who make the distinction between the necessity of God as the precondition for intelligibility versus the uh, necessity of presupposing God in order to have intelligibility uh, and things like that. Well, why, what is the what is the accusation really? I mean, as as you under as you understand it, uh, what are people saying with regards to what they think we are doing by conflating ontology and epistemology, and what's up with this issue of the existence of God? being the necessary precondition versus the uh, assumption of God, the presupposition of God being the necessary precondition. People tend to make a a, kind of a conflation there.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, again, we have to be um, clear when we can about what we mean by presuppose. Van Til uses it in in, uh, two or three different ways. One of the ways he uses it is um, a presupposition is uh, what I actually believe foundationally and that informs everything else that i believe so that's that's a kind of subjective aspect and that's exactly mm-hmm. right that's the typical way it's used but Ventil always says uh, also says that um, unbelievers presuppose god even in their rejection of god now what could he mean by that he's not say, he's not saying there that the presupposition in that sense is subjective what he's saying is again what bonson was saying Ah, uh, thank you for coming to this debate. You've just proven the existence of God. In other words, um, in 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 order for us to have uh, any meaning whatsoever in what we say as human beings, what we do as human beings, uh, the Christian story has to be true, and God has to be who He says He is. So that's kind of more of an objective scenario. Um, and I think you know what what people have said to me is, um, you know, you confuse the ontology with epistemology because. Because I knew a lot of things before I became a Christian, so and I didn't I didn't presuppose God and all of those things that I knew, and and my point is, um, you you knew all of those things if you did, and when you did, only because Christianity is true and God is who He says He is, and you came to recognize that when you were converted to Christ. So so those things were already in play. That's what I mean by presupposition. The reality of that state of affairs was already in play as you were living and moving and having your being. That's Paul's
0: point in Acts, isn't it? So the reality of the existence of the triune God, now I'm I'm speaking to people who ask these questions in different contexts, and so you might be wondering why I'm bringing this in. But the triune God creates that ontological context where oneness and manyness is equally ultimate, correct? So that's true regardless if you're living, for example, in the Old Testament time, right? Mm -hmm. If the triune God is a necessary precondition for knowledge now, then it must be the case that the, triune, the existence of the triune God of Scripture is a necessary precondition back in the Old Testament times. So with regards to knowledge, having knowledge in the Old Testament, what do we do with Old Testament prophets, for example, that didn't really understand God as triune? In what sense do they have knowledge— if they're not consciously acknowledging God's triunity, which is connected with the one and the many issue, which in turn is related directly or indirectly to the epistemological issue.
1: Yeah, well, as, as I think, you know, um, Revelation is progressive in history. Um, God didn't say everything at once. He could have. I mean, he could have just easily, you know, in, in the garden uh, after Adam and Eve sinned, he could have just said, here's the Bible, go read it and, and do what it says. He could have had it all there. Um, he chose not to do it that way. He chose to reveal um, uh, to the fathers through the prophets. Uh, and in that revelation, uh, God's people are always and only responsible for what God has said at that point in history. Um, so they, so everything that they were meant to know, um, they had available to them by God's revelation. Now, included in what God says to his people from Genesis forward, included in that, as Paul makes clear in Romans one has always been um, the revelation of God that comes through creation. Paul says, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen. So there's never been a time again, Paul in acts 14, there's never been a time when God has been without witness. So knowledge of God has been intrinsic to the human condition. Since God blew the breath of life, into Adam, and then from uh, Adam, Eve, and each of them became a living soul made in the image of God. So in that sense, we've been people who know God uh, at the point of self-consciousness. If we know ourselves, we know God. And then on top of that, included in that has been God's active speaking to his people uh, from from Genesis uh, one all the way through, and then post fall, God speaking to his people uh, in redemptive history. So um, maybe Isaiah didn't have uh, the availability of a one and many argument, but he had, he certainly had the recognition um, that reality is what it is because of who God is and what he has said. And that's the fundamental presupposition for all of us throughout history.
0: Now uh, let's dive into a little bit. This is something that comes up often uh, and it's, it's an issue, two things that I want to, I want to ask. And I think this is a great opportunity to clarify is we say, for example, in in accordance with Romans chapter one, that all men know that God exists and they suppress that knowledge in their unrighteousness. righteousness. Um, But in what sense does the unbeliever know that God exists and doesn't know God, right? When when we talk about these things, there's a way in which he knows and a way in which he doesn't. And what is the content of that knowledge? Is the knowledge of God that that the natural man is suppressing? Does that involve God's triunity? Uh, do, what, what, what is the boundary line with regards to what can be known about God that is known to the unbeliever such that, he, that he's without excuse? Right. Yeah. And
1: it's a good question. And my, my standard answer to that question is this. Uh, we don't have the option um, to begin to create categories and lists that Scripture doesn't clearly give to us. Okay. So, so um, I wish I knew the answer to all those questions. You know, Van Til says that one of the most difficult questions that we face as Christians, and especially in apologetics, is the question of human knowledge. God mm-hmm. hasn't given us a whole lot of detail on on what people are always thinking or on what an individual thinks at a particular point but the list that he does give us in in terms of the suppression of the truth is that is that uh, what people know and i think you know we have to say this this would likely vary in people's lives according to what god is doing in the world and in in their lives uh, individually if they're not trusting in him but they know his his invisible attributes his eternal power his divine nature so there's never a point when we're speaking to somebody at which they don't know those things about God. And in knowing those things about God, it includes the fact that they know that they're creatures of his, and therefore they owe him they they're obligated to be obedient. That's Romans one uh, thirty two. So they, they know not only they know him, but they know his uh, his righteous requirements. Paul says Romans one thirty two. The dikaioma, as he as he uh, says it there, the Greek word, is the righteous requirements of God. That's given in natural revelation. So everybody that we go to and speak to, everybody that listens to us, should recognize that God has said that they know him. And they know what he requires, certainly not in every detail, but enough to know that when they see him on judgment day, they will not be able to say, I can be excused because you didn't tell me enough. I can be excused because I didn't know what to do. Nobody's going to be excused. Because God has made himself known. And, and the, you know, the dynamic there that Paul gives us, Romans 1.18, uh, 118, the wrath of God is being revealed as sort of a dynamic thing that God is doing in and through the world. It's a process taking place that all of us are confronted with. So just you know, a nice relevant example. What in the world, literally, what in the world is going on with this virus? Well, we know this is going on. God is in the business of getting people's attention in various ways. And when he gets people's attention across the world in this kind of way, where we recognize our helplessness in the midst of something like this that we can't see, our first reaction ought to be to hit our knees and repent and understand, yes, not only am I not control in the control of this virus, I'm not in control of anything in the world, mm-hmm. but God is. And it ought to press us to know him. Um, so, you know, what is that? So the virus is a revelation of the wrath of God in history because it's a product of sinfulness. Wouldn't be doing what it's doing if we hadn't ruined what God had made. Mm -hmm. So it's, 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 it's a revelation of the wrath of God. And what that ought to do is not make us suppress who God is, but make us turn to God and repent and believe. Mm.
0: All right. um, Now let's shift a little bit to, I think, what is it, an underdeveloped area within the presuppositional methodology. At least, I mean, again, I'm speaking in terms of just the popular accessibility of it all. I mean, with regards to some of the scholarly work, I'm not sure how much work is done in this area. But uh, there seems to be a common misconception that uh, presuppositional apologetics – Uh, various forms of the transcendental argument in particular works well with the atheist. Uh, But what do you do uh, when you have other religious perspectives that vie for uh, plausibility with regards to its ability to uh, ground things like logic, like, um, you know, rationality and and things like that? How might we apply a presuppositional approach? Um, And even if we were so inclined to use a transcendental argument, how would we apply that to um, different religious perspectives?
1: Yeah, um, great, uh, boy. I wish I, I wish I could um, had the knowledge to to go through every one of those and and, and let you know because there are so yeah. many religious perspectives, aren't there? Just
0: grab a couple. You can grab a couple of examples. You know, don't, don't you don't need to be exhaustive. It's okay. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. Well, I think um, you know. I think what what Jeff Durbin has done with respect to Mormonism, he's he's applied this in in uh, significant ways and and has a real ministry in that context and and. Um, what I tried to do in my, in my book, um, with the, the fellow that I invented, that I, um, that I speak to about Islam, what you, what we need to recognize in every one of these, uh, religious contexts is that Christ is not savior. And, and, and see, I, I think when sometimes we, we can get so, um, mixed up with the intellectual side of this, that we miss the, the actual point of what the problem is. The problem in every other religion is that Christ is not savior, really and truly. And so one of the things we wanna to try to do is we presuppose who God is and what he's done is help people recognize that with that presupposition comes the reality that the only way our sin can be taken care of is if Christ is who he said he is and if he's done what he said he's done. And so if, if we wanna um, you know, talk to some uh, Muslim uh, about the Quran, uh, they they want to uh, they think they're exalting Christ by calling him a good prophet, and I think we need to help people un- like that understand that's not an option uh, biblically. And and they you know I I remember hearing a converted Muslim say you know he said Muslims have no problem at all with the Old Testament, and 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 my reaction was well that's perfect because guess what Christ is in the Old Testament. And, and the reality of our need for salvation is in the Old Testament. So let's talk to a Muslim about the Old Testament since they don't have a problem with it and show them who Christ is and show them what he is going to do in light of what the Old Testament is telling us. And that's the way I think we need to try to approach uh, That The advantage we have with religions is um, that they have their books and sometimes it includes the Bible, but if it includes the Bible, the Bible's never um, central. Mm-hmm. They have their books, and we have our book. So, the, what we what we need to recognize theologically is that at any time when we communicate the truth of God's word to people who are outside of Christ, that truth makes its way and always accomplishes what God sends it for. That's Isaiah fifty three. So, there's no point at which the truth of God is going to fail. So, the more we expose them to the truth of God, um, the more we are quote unquote successful in that the Holy Spirit will use that for his own sovereign purposes. So it's just a continual, I think a continual discussion about what God Himself has said in his word. And then, you know, if we we want to get on on their turf and say, so, so why do you believe you don't need a savior? Or or why do you believe sin is not as um as a dire as what what our Bible says it is? Why do you think sin's just sort of not a big deal? You know, you can begin to talk about those kinds of things and help people understand as much as we're able humanly um, that without Christ, we're blind and we're deaf.
0: Hmm. Uh, Those of you who uh, heard Dr. Oliphant mention uh, Jeff Durbin, uh, we're going to be having Jeff Durbin on on the 29th uh, to discuss specifically um, a presuppositional application to different areas of unbelief. And so tell him for me, I, I most definitely will. Um, and so we'll, we'll be addressing those issues, which I think is, uh, worth, um, an uh, expanded discussion, guys. What I'm trying to do is uh, get people more aware of a more intellectual presentation of the presuppositional method. I know there are a lot of different uh, attempts in, in employing it in different contexts. And of course, those attempts should be lauded. Obviously, we should all be engaging in apologetics. But I do think that there are useful ways that we can do it in terms of clarification and application in areas that Um, that are not normally seen, uh, you know, used in that way. We also have Dr. Michael Kruger as well, who will be talking about presuppositional uh, application to the issue of biblical canon. So I think um, the... The awesome thing about presuppositional methodology is its great breadth of application, which is just waiting to be tapped into with regards to at least the popular level apologetics, which we very much appreciate the work that many scholars are doing in their specific area. So hopefully this material will get out there and people will be able to benefit from it and use it uh, in a way that is uh, consistent with First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, it's its um, injunction to do apologetics with Gentleness and respect, and that goes for the people in the comments as well. Um, I'm, I, I would imagine that Doctor Oliphant would agree with me that it is very possible to um, engage in apologetics unbiblically, and that doesn't uh, mm-hmm. that that includes the manner with which we engage, not just the content of our argument all right well um let's take a couple more questions and then we'll wrap things up because i do want to respect your time dr oliphant and uh before we we do end and take some questions i do want to thank you for uh just sacrificing your time i know that you're really busy uh one would think you're just probably home playing video games because you're quarantined what else do you have to do right <laughs> yeah not not that, not that. Are, are you a movie guy do you watch movies on your spare time what do let me ask a quick side personal <laughs> question what do you do for fun dr oliphant well um you know because i'm I'm a
1: theologian we define our terms don't we so what do you mean by fun um i i I'm actually having a great time writing on my um, current book that's that's um, already late and, and meant to be submitted so uh, that that's that's great fun but sure my, my wife and I we we relax. Um, we take walks. Um, when I'm not uh, confined by a virus, I, I play handball with a group of guys, um, cool. nearby. Yeah. I've been playing that for a while and that kind of keeps things going. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm stressed or something, I can, I can attach a certain name to the ball and, um, you know, and hit it against <laughs> the wall. And, uh, that's, that's a good therapy for me. I'm teasing about that, but you know, those, those kinds of things. Yeah, certainly. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not immune to watching movies by any stretch.
0: Okay. I would never have taken you for a handball guy. That's kind of like, you know, you're in like Manhattan somewhere with, the you know, in the park somewhere. I def that was definitely out of left field. Well, uh, I'm sorry,
1: people don't play it more. You know, it's, it's become <laughs> racquetball's become the big thing now because it's easier okay. and you know, you, you don't have to, you don't have to do much to play it, but handball was the original game. And unfortunately it's, it's, uh, it's not as popular because it's, you know, it's, it's not easy to learn and it's kind of hard on your body, but it's a, it's a great game. It's fun to play.
0: Well, I I think you'll appreciate, appreciate this here after you just, uh, express what you do for fun. Someone here put there, uh, Matt Yester says, Dr. Scott, Alafun." <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I like that. that's, that's a really good one. All right. So let's take some questions and, and comments here. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Daniel is asking a question here. It may be a big one, but if you can just be as succinct as possible, uh, could you explain Van Til's rejection of Aquinas's first way? Uh, maybe this person's writing a paper and wants a quick answer. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you can briefly summarize that. T- I mean, feel free. I mean, I'm, I'm saying briefly, cause I'm assuming you probably have to get to other things, but I can technically be on here with you for, uh, for quite a long time. So go for it.
1: Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, the first way, so i um, you know, this is the world I live in. The first way was actually arguing from motion. That one's kind of gone by the boards. People don't talk about it much anymore because it had a sort of antiquated view of motion. The second way is from causality. The fourth way has more to do with the gradation of being. So I'm I'm not um I'm not exactly sure what um exactly what he's asking, but um let me, let me just say one thing because I won't be able to say everything here. In covenantal apologetics, one of the things I do is I show, I show the classical approach. I actually use a real live example of a classical approach on causality, and I go through that. It's a it's a transcript of a of an actual event that happened. And then what I do is say, now, if you're going to be covenantal about this approach, here's one possible way to apply it. So um, I do try to show that, um, that the theistic proofs, Van Til would say this over and over again, that theistic proofs are objectively valid. The problem with the proofs, one of the problems with the proofs is uh, they can't be, um, they can't do what they're supposed to do if you begin with a kind of neutral notion of rationality. And I think mm-hmm. that's what's been shown in the classical approach. And that would be Van Til's primary objection uh, all of the proofs, all of the, all of the five ways and, and, and other apologetic approaches, more evidential approaches, is that if you start with uh, with a kind of a presupposition of autonomy, that you can figure this out yourself or that you have the irrational ability to start from premise one and to conclude for the existence of an infinite, eternal, immutable, omniscient God, you just don't have the tools in and of yourself to do that. I mean, we just don't have a way uh, th- theoretically, methodologically to jump from the finite to the infinite, from the temporal to the eternal, uh, from the changeable to the immutable. We just don't have a way to do that. Mm. So, so that was, that was his problem. But if you presuppose the existence of God and then talk to someone about, um, causality or contingency and necessity, uh, then you can move a ways with that and begin to discuss that. I, I tried to work that through a little bit, uh, in a four views book that, um, that I was involved in a couple of years ago on Christianity and philosophy. And I interacted with Graham Oppie some on that. And, you know, his view is basically um, all that is is matter and there's nothing but matter. And, and um, you know, and so, and, and I was, I was trying to, to show him that there, there really was a need uh, for something necessary. If, if what we have in the world is, is nothing but contingency. Wow. Um, and I, I, I use that, I think in a presuppositional way, uh, just trying to show that he really, his way is no explanation. It's just kind of, um, uh, stating the the facts of the matter, but it really doesn't help us with, it with explaining what's going on. Um, you know, and he said at one point, I think he said, you know, if I were really pushed, I might go for some sort of beginning point for contingency, but that's as far as I could go with it. Yeah. Well, you know, that's okay. But the point is, um, if you presuppose who God is and what He said, then things like causality, necessity, contingency, teleology—those things take their proper context, and you can discuss
0: them. Right, by His light we see light. Right, right. He, he pr- provides that context. Here's a, not a question, but a really—this is why I like to do this. Uh, these kinds of things. Uh, Spartan theology says, "Great interview. I'm really trying to understand the methodology better, and this channel has been very helpful." Well, mission accomplished. That's that's the well, goal. Um, That are are understanding the methodology, even if you don't agree with it. I I hope you agree with it. I think it's a biblical method. Um, But if you don't agree with it, um, a mission still accomplished if you accurately understand uh, the perspective. Uh, So can I I
1: give you one? um, Can I give you one um, suggestion? Um, This is a book that a former student of mine just published. It's called Every Believer Confident. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the author is Mark Farnham. F-A-R-N-H-A-M. He's really trying to do what you're doing, make this uh, accessible for the church. And um, his book, Every Believer Confident, is a really nice, easy intro into a lot of these ideas. Uh, So I I would highly recommend it for people who are interested.
0: Can you say the name uh, again there?
1: Yeah, Mark Farnham, F-A-R-N-H-A-M. He teaches at uh, Lancaster Bible Co- College and, ha- and does a lot of work in apologetics over there. He's just a fabulous guy and re- really a good thinker on these things.
0: Okay. All right. Thank you for that. And here we have another uh, comment from Pine Creek. Maybe you could ad- maybe you could address it. It's a comment, not so much of a question, but I think someone could form it in a question here. Pine Creek uh, says, presuppositional apologetics is ineffective for all worldviews in terms of changing minds. Dr. Scott Oliphant became a Christian years before he learned about this apologetic. If we could restructure that into a question, what do you think this person is getting at?
1: Yeah, I, I understand uh, what he's saying because uh, before I was a Christian, I didn't care about apologetics and I didn't think I had a worldview. Um, and, then, and then the Lord changed me and reached in and, and, and grabbed <laughs> me. And, um, and then I began thinking about um, other people who, who also need Christ like I did. And I uh, wanted to talk to them about their need for Christ. And, and, in, the, and in the process of those discussions, um, by definition, uh, I would get into um, debates about things, you know, not, not because I wanted to, but because we're talking about, you know, two vastly different worldviews. And in, and in getting into those debates, um, I became more and more interested in apologetics. I wanted to know more and more uh, how best to articulate what I believed and what I was saying and how to help uh, people understand that better also how to understand people better when I'm articulating these things. So Mm -hmm. so I think apologetics, like evangelism, uh, is a tool that we use as Christians, that we're supposed to use as Christians. Um, And then uh, I I think I have to say, uh, given all of that, even when we use those tools, um, the one who changes minds is God himself through the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. He uses his truth to do that. But um, apologetics in and of itself won't change minds, but apologetics that is rooted in Scripture can be used by God to change minds and to change hearts and to bring people to himself.
0: Right, and here's an, another uh, question that Pine Creek asked. Uh, Could a diune or a tetraune God be sufficient precondition for intelligibility? I guess this is kind of a, uh, a variation on the, well, suppose you have a God who has some sort of grounding for oneness and manyness. What? Well, why couldn't these... Um, Uh, Why couldn't these options possibly fit the bill? Why does Christianity, uh, with their triune God, necessarily uh, have to be the case?
1: Yeah. um, And the short answer to that is because uh, a diune or tetraune God would be an idol. Um, That's not who God is. Um, God has told us who he is. We don't have the option of redefining him so that our methodology um, conforms to our redefinition. Uh, But God is who he is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. Um, so, um, anything else, uh, would not be the God of scripture and would not, would not be the God who's revealed himself in the world and through his word. So by definition, it would be utterly idolatrous and ineffectual. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I think also another issue with this, when someone tries to posit another option for the necessary preconditions of intelligibility, I wonder if the person suggesting this hypothetical option himself holds to that option. Because if he's granting, perhaps this other thing can ground intelligibility, are they also implicitly admitting that their current position does not ground the very intelligibility of their question, since their question is formed from a worldview perspective? Uh, well, you you can't you can't float in between worldviews and ask these questions from a neutral perspective, which I think is very important to keep in mind uh, yeah. as well. All right. Um, there are a couple of questions about regards to your uh, your views on simplicity, but I don't want to touch on those because they are outside the bounds of what we really tried to do here. Um, But uh, by the way, I'm sorry. I affirm it by the way. Divine, divine simplicity. Okay. I'm sure, I'm sure someone will say, well, what kind of divine simplicity? (laughs) 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 Let, Let me tell you something. Every person that I've had on this show, someone has messaged me and said, be careful with that person. This person holds too. And then they'll go off to some other. <laughs> so uh, I guess we could never have anyone on the show because someone is a heretic in someone else's eyes. Uh, so yeah, it's a rough yeah, world out there. It is. It is a rough world there. Okay. So uh, let me uh, wrap things up here. Uh, Dr. Uh, Oliphant, thank you so much for, for coming on and giving of your time. I know that you're, you're a busy man. And I'm sure that people will find this uh, one hour and 25 minute or so uh, interview very, very helpful as we've covered uh, a wide range of topics. Just real quick, in terms of encouragement for people who want to continue to study apologetics and the presuppositional method in particular, um, do not merely be a podcast um, and YouTube channel apologist. You, You do want to first acknowledge the usefulness of things like this, but you definitely want to engage in some of the reading and more in-depth study um, if you're able to do that because there's much more to flesh out. Uh, it does not do justice to the topic to just merely do a, uh, an interview here for, even if we did it for three hours, we couldn't uh, exhaust all of the possible issues that are related to this. So uh, with that said, is there any uh, anything you'd like to say in closing, Dr. Oliphant? No, just thank you for your work and what you're doing. And uh, I'm sorry to say I wasn't
1: familiar with it, but I'm happy to see this uh, kind of thing being done. So thanks very much.
0: Well, thank you so much. If you could just stay on just for a few moments as I end the broadcast, we'll still be in kind of that unlive studio where it'll just be you and I, and then we will uh, part ways from there. Thank you so much, guys. If you have any questions uh, for me uh, with regards to possible guests or apologetics questions or or things like that, you could email me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. Um, and stay tuned for uh, upcoming interviews. We have uh, Dr. James Anderson from uh, Reform Theological Seminary coming on, Jeff Durbin, Doug Wilson, and i um, trying to get Jason Lyle. If anyone knows how to connect me with Jason Lyle, that'd be greatly appreciated. Uh, we want to provide a great resource for people to promote uh, this apologetic methodology, um, and so I would greatly appreciate that. Well, that's it for this episode. Take care, and God bless. Bye-bye. And we're done. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.